Pseudopod, episode 323, March 1st, 2013. This week's story, The Trinket, by P.G. Bell. Hello, and welcome to Pseudopod, the weekly horror podcast. I'm Alistair, your slightly more Krogan-sounding host, and this week's story comes to us from an author born and raised less than a mile from the old Roman fortress of Caerleon in South Wales. P.G. Bell now lives in Cardiff with his wife Anna and son Aurelian, and I apologise to the entire nation of Wales for my pronunciation, and is currently finishing his first novel. He's an editor at Impossible Podcasts, in charge of the Stories in Print thread, and this story, appropriately, first appeared in the Phantom Queen Awakes anthology published by Morrigan Books. Your narrator this week is John Trevelyan. John is the award-winning author of the Amen trilogy, The Amen, The Amen Return, and Forever Amen. The books are crammed full of nightmarish storylines, jet-black humour, urban undead, and some fantastic central concepts. They're available in print, audiobook and ebook, and the first book is also available as a free dramatised podcast. Links to all of this will, of course, be in the show notes. John's a multi-talented guy as well, and draws on his previous experience as a magazine editor, tech writer and IT journalist as a means of helping his writing. He's also trained in the order of bards, ovates and druids, and in Native American shamanism, so he's a very well-rounded, very ideas-heavy, well-read guy. He's also a founder of the Talliston House and Gardens Project, a fascinating idea that mixes the geography of a house with the outside world. It's designed to be used as a means of examining different time periods and styles, and this means that you can have things like a medieval watchtower living room, a Cambodia treehouse attic, or an Art Nouveau haunted Scottish bedroom, essentially enabling you to travel through the house and examine how design and style and architecture and history are all wrapped around one another simply by moving room to room. I love it. I'm a total mark for architectural projects like that, and I would highly recommend you take a look at www.talliston.com. That's T-A-L-L-I-S-T-O-N.com, the homepage to check it out. Again, that will be in the show notes. So grab your gladius and work out exactly what sort of ground you're standing on, because this story is true, and that truth is worth fighting for. The Trinket by P.G. Bell They burned Gedarus in the yard outside the barracks. Dawn had brought the first break in rain for ten days, and the men, still cold and filthy from the construction work, cast anxious glances at the black weight of cloud that threatened to stamp out and drown the struggling flames. Those closest to the pyre stole a guilty pleasure from its warmth, all except Rufinius, who stood to attention at the head of the bonfire, his nostrils thick with the smell of pitch and roasting meat. This man was the best of us, his voice cracked open the still air, a leader of men and a soldier of Rome. Today we honour him. He nodded to the priests who stepped forward and began reciting the prayers for the dead. Rufinius did not listen. Instead, he narrowed his eyes against the smoke and surveyed the army standing ready around him. A full century of men, their plate armour dull and glassy in the pale sunlight, the auxiliary soldiers and craftsmen standing in a loose huddle farther out. Surrounding them all, the fledgling stronghold of Glevum rose black and skeletal from the churned clay of the earth. 
He tried to ease some circulation back into his toes and felt the pendant shift beneath his tunic. He could be rid of it in an instant, he realised. Just throw it on the fire with the other offerings and never mind what the woman might say. But even before he saw her, watching him from the rear of the crowd, he knew it was nothing more than a lazy idea. He had come too far and done too much to just throw the thing away. Her face was one among hundreds, but her unwavering stare stood out like a beacon, fixing him with an intensity that made him look away. With a slight start, he realised the priests had finished their ministrations, and the men were waiting for him to continue. He cleared his throat. You won't get far. Snow still lay thick on the ground in the frontier settlement of Isca Dumnoniorum, but if the woman felt the cold at all, she did not show it. Instead, she picked her way down the temple steps, her raven hair dusted with grey, assessing him with a steady, almost bored eye. Rome is a long way, and the Emperor's justice travels more quickly than a deserter. You'll never reach the coast. Rufinius stopped, drew himself up, and re-shouldered his pack in an effort to hide the sudden flash of guilt that had seized him. I'm not going anywhere except to my bunk, old woman. Away with you. She laughed, and it was a sound like knives being drawn. He turned hurriedly away. You think you're the first? She followed a few steps behind him, speaking loud enough for one or two passers-by to turn their heads in her direction. He quickened his pace. I must have seen a legion's worth of young men pay their offerings to your gods, all of them crying for their homelands. She laughed again. Your gods can't help you here, I'm afraid. Her words had the bite of truth to them. He had made landfall in Britannia two days ago, one of a boatload of raw recruits sent to bolster the Second Legion Augusta before its westward march to face the Siluri uprising, and already he hated the place. It wore the stamp of the Empire badly, like an ugly child playing in its mother's finest clothes. The march from the coast had been a miserable affair shrouded in a freezing fog through which the bare trees, frozen marshlands and craven daylight that seemed to make up this wretched island could just be discerned. The natives were little better. Like the land that supported them, they were drained of colour and vivacity, their ghostly complexions marred with tattoos like broken veins. He pictured them eating its food and drinking its water, digging the very essence of the place out of the frozen soil and consuming it, contaminating themselves until even their blood ran grey. He had begun pining for the sweep and plunge of the old hill country, the smell of its russet soil baking in the noonday sun as he worked in the shade of the ash trees. By the time the gates of Dumnoniorum came into view, he had made up his mind. He had to get out. The woman approached him, swinging her hips in a mockery of a flirtatious swagger. You've made up your mind to leave, she said. I haven't. She began circling him closely, her bare shoulder rubbing his sleeve. 
Her accent and dress were Celtic, although her clothes were the finest he had seen in months, and her Latin was flawless. You have, and I can help you, but I need you to do something for me in return. Her eyes were fierce and unblinking, the faint smile still in place beneath them. I don't want your help, he said, resuming his course. He would have to leave before the night watch began and they barred the gates. I'm a woman of influence, she called after him, and it's an influence I'm willing to share, if that's what you want. He walked on, slow and deliberate. The town seemed to hold its breath in the crisp air. In exchange for what, he asked, finally turning back. Her smile broadened. I'll show you. The sun was failing and the snow reflected the purple taint of the sky as they approached the edge of the woods. Firelight burned strongly from within, painting blocks of shadow across the ground and a hum of voices could be heard, broken by an incongruous series of grunts and slaps. A cheer went up. Something moved against the flames. Following the woman, Rufinius emerged in a circular clearing lit by a trio of bonfires. A crowd of people stood in a loose ring around its fringes, watching two figures as they grappled naked in the centre. The woman did not wait for him, but found a space from which to observe the contest. A little self-consciously, he took up a position at her shoulder. The two fighters pulled apart, and in the second before they slammed back together, he was able to make out their features. One of them was a Celt, his face flowing with blood and tattoos, his hair spiked in the style of a warrior. The other man was Gedarus. Despite his brief spell in the settlement, Rufinius had already acquired the faintest trace of the awe in which the other legionaries held the man. He's afraid of nothing, they whispered. Throttled an Iberian chieftain with his bare hands, going to be a centurion by the end of the campaign. It was easy to believe. He was like a bear, standing a head taller than anyone else in the Legion, and even now had his opponent backing in unsteady circles around the clearing. A faint, a quick step, and he seized his prey, locking the man's arms within his own. The crowd babbled excitedly, money and tokens changing hands. Stop him. The woman was at his ear, although he noticed she never took her eyes off the contest. Why, he's winning a fair fight. Not the Roman, the Celt. In a moment he will become desperate, take up a rock and kill your legionary. He tried to laugh, but something in her tone stopped him. How can you possibly know that? Because he's a coward who thinks that victories will win the favour of the Morrigan. And who is that? A creature with no taste for weak men. Suddenly she thrust a pointing finger towards Gedarus. There, see what he wears. True enough, he saw that Gedarus was not entirely naked after all. Something gold winked in the hollow of his chest. That pendant was mine once she said, her voice betraying the first traces of emotion. The man I loved carried it into battle, loaded with promises. 
He never returned. Now your legionary wears it for luck. She sneered. It's nothing but a bauble to him. A trinket. And with astonishing strength, she gripped Rufinius's forearm and trained her fierce eyes on his. Steal it for me. He tried to pull free, but her fingers bit deeper. I have come a long way in search of this, she hissed. If a legionary dies now, they will burn him with it, or use it to pay for the cremation. And if I lose my prize, you will lose my favour. Her words sent a cold prickle of doubt crawling through him. You really are mad, was all he could manage. The Celt was weakening, his hands planted on the ground as he tried to throw Gedarus off. His arms trembled and gobs of saliva dropped freely from his mouth. Rufinius looked around wildly, unable to free himself from the woman's grasp, hoping desperately that none of the others had recognised him. Do this for me, she intoned, and I will send you home in triumph. You'll never have to beg for work from ignorant farmers again. He flinched. How do you? There was a gasp from the crowd and he looked up in time to see Gedarus fall backwards, clutching his face. The Celt sprang up, a shard of rock raised to strike. But Rufinius was moving, suddenly free of the woman, his feet leaving the ground as he caught the man by the waist and drove him to the dirt. The stone clattered to a stop between them. There was an instant of shocked incomprehension. Then the warrior lunged for the stone. Neither man saw Gedarus move. There was just the flash of steel and a wet smack as the short sword punctured the Celt's neck, locking his body in a single, agonising convulsion. A gush of blood escaped the man's nose and a short, sharp exclamation, almost a laugh, burst from his lips. Then, with a grinding of bone, Gedarus twisted the blade, and he was dead. Put this thing on the fire, Gedarus commanded the crowd, now watching in silence. Then, reaching out a hand, he hauled Rufinius to his feet. Thank you, friend. You've got a sharp eye. Rufinius could not muster a reply, but looked back to the woman, fear and questions in his eyes. The firelight poured shadows into the lines and hollows of her face, and smiling, her mouth became a toothless burrow, gouged in festering soil. She nodded, the gesture loaded with complicity, before drifting away into the wooded shadows. Now, in the damp and sludge of Iska, he stooped and clawed up a handful of mud. This he announced, raising the rank pile for the crowd to see, is Roman soil. The words were met with a roar of approval. We do not fight to claim it from others. We fight to protect it from those who have no place here. Imagine building a fine house only to find, as soon as it was completed, that it was overrun with thieves and savages. What would you do? He surveyed them. You would take up your sword and drive them out. A murmur of assent from the crowd, but a wry smile from the woman. Gedarus understood this. He pointed to the flames as they continued the hungry work of lifting skin and hair and clothes from the body. 
He fought and died that we might keep this land pure, keep it Roman. He lifted the clod still higher, thick black ribbons of liquid dirt streaming down his wrist. Tell me, legionaries, what greater claim can we hold to the land than this, that the blood that ran in his veins now runs through this soil? They erupted to a man and he felt the glow of pride start to kindle in him. He fought for you, he urged them. Will you fight for him? With a sound like a rainstorm, every sword was drawn and held aloft. Will you fight with me? Yes, they roared. Then we will drive our enemies out of this land and into the seas, he cried, and let every Celt understand that if they are not Roman, they are dead. The applause, the cheers, the stamping of feet and bellowing of voices rose on clattering wings toward the clouds, prickling the hairs on his arms as it went. And then he saw the woman beckon him and turn away. With a last look at Gedarus, curled like a newborn in his nest of blazing branches, he stepped down and followed her. The time had come to close the deal. Three days after the death of the Celt, the cold finally broke and they marched northwest. The land burbled and sang with the slow death of winter, a chill and ceaseless rain turning the snow to a dirty slush beneath their sandals. Rufinius marched in the midst of the fifth cohort, out of sight of Gedarus, who marched in the first. Nevertheless, Gedarus did not seem in the least embarrassed to show his gratitude to the small, rattish yokel whose intervention had saved his life, and the pair were usually to be found sheltering together when the legion made camp for the night. Your accent, Gedarus announced as they shared a skin of wine one evening. You're from the country? The piano grande. You lucky devil, Gedarus beamed. More beautiful than all the buildings of Rome. Why on earth did you leave? Rufinius dropped his gaze, embarrassed. Last year's harvest was a bad one. I was destitute. The legion was my only choice. And they sent you to us, you poor bastard. The words had obviously been meant as a joke, but something in the pained smile he got in return caused Gedarus to knit his brows together. If you think this is bad, wait until we reach the Salaris territory, the most barren collection of rock this island has to offer, but they'll slaughter anyone who comes near it. There are some hard fights ahead. Rufinius knew this all too well. It had been almost the sole topic of conversation amongst the men since his arrival. The Silluris were the most savage and hostile of the native tribes, refusing all civilization, choosing instead to flee westward into the mountains and valleys. This was where the legion was bound. How many battles have you fought? he asked. Fifty, not including the paid fights. How about you? He toyed with the wineskin, feeling the first tug of jealousy. None. He cast a glance into the darkness where the usual circus of mercenaries, tradesmen and prostitutes that gathered in the wake of any army on the march had bedded down for the night. The woman was with them, he felt certain, but all his attempts to acquire the pendant had so far come to nothing, 
Gedarus never removed it. He had even stolen into the man's tent one night, only to find the chain wrapped tightly around Gedarus's wrist and the pendant locked in his fist. Gedarus had caught him staring at it the morning they had set out. A fine piece, isn't it? he said, lifting it to the light and letting it spin slowly. Very nice, Rufinius conceded, perhaps a little too quickly. What at first appeared to be just another piece of Celtic knotwork was, in fact, a twisting golden serpent, exquisitely detailed down to the scales on its back and the curve of its fangs as it devoured its own tail. A single stone, black and cold, marked its eye. Where did you get it? My first battle. A group of Celts surprised us on the road outside Londinium. The best of them was carrying it. Why don't you sell it? The question sounded awkward, even to his own ears. Because I've never lost a fight since. The man who beats me can take it. Nobody else. Rufinius reflected on this as they marched. What if, a few weeks from now, some Salure peasant was wearing the thing? He was still trying to concoct a means of stealing it two days later, when the legion left the road and struck out across country. The putrefying remains of winter made the going hard. Twice they had to abandon their route and find higher ground as they met rising floodwaters and valleys blocked by mudslides. They were fording a river, white water surging around their thighs when the first attack came. The tree line on the far bank shivered and burst into a horde of screaming figures, ghostly white and naked, the flash of bronze and iron in their hands. Rufinius, already preoccupied with keeping his footing, froze, his hand at the hilt of his sword, his lungs gripped tight by fear, with a bellow of fury, the first warrior entered the water. That happened to me at the start, Gedarus indicated Rufinius's trembling hands as they sat with the rest of the legion on the riverbank, their clothes steaming. Rufinius found it hard to speak, his mind was still ruled by the memory of the vibration that had travelled up the length of his arm as a man's face opened in a blossom of red meat and gristle beneath the point of his sword. The young warrior had misjudged his attack, leaving himself open, and Rufinius, seeing his chance, had very nearly backed away from it. The idea of releasing something as absolute and irreversible as death on a man had terrified him. It still did. Only the threat of having his ashes scattered in this alien wasteland had prompted him to action, all notions of flight or mercy stillborn. The few surviving Salures had soon fled, leaving the corpses of their kinsmen to a trio of carrion crows circling overhead. So what saw you through? Gedarus asked. Rufinius shrank a little under his comrade's searching gaze. I don't know what you mean, he said, glancing at the length of gold chain just visible around his friend's neck. I had my training. Gedarus waved the words away. Every man fights for something, even if it's just his pay. What is it you fight for? He offered the first lie that occurred to him. For Caesar. That's very noble, Gedarus nodded. But it's crap. 
Rufinius searched frantically for any trace of accusation in the words. We all took the oath when we enlisted, Gedrus went on. We all eat and sleep and shit for Caesar, but tell me, when you were knee-deep in that water with your enemy at your throat, did you spare the stuttering old fart a single thought? Rufinius opened his mouth to argue, considered lying again, then shut it. You need something of your own to stand for, said Gedarus. Only a monster fights without cause. He pointed to a spot downstream where a team of men was dumping the corpses of the enemy into the water. Even those poor creatures fight for their goddess. What sort of goddess calls men to the slaughter? They say she's a queen, ancient and wise and terrible, who rides on raven wings over the battlefield to claim the souls of brave warriors. The Morrigan. The name came unbidden to his lips. That's a name I've heard, Gedarus said. But who knows? The gods change with every mile on this damn island. Rufinius watched the river fold the blue-white corpses beneath its surface and suppressed a shudder. They weren't even wearing any armour. They do it to please her, and they think we're cowards for protecting ourselves. So I'll ask you again, what do you fight for? I... I don't know. Gedarus coughed, spat, and stood up. Well, I suggest you decide before we run into any more Celts. I'd be sorry to lose you. He started towards the point where the column was reforming. Rufinius remembered the sight of him striding calmly through the waters to meet the charge, his sword and dagger at the ready, silently marking up each of the attackers for death. I don't want to die here, he called after him. Gedarus paused. That's as good a reason as any. Rufinius started after him. And what about you? Why do you fight? Honestly? Gedarus hoisted his features into a lopsided smile. Because it's the only thing I'm good at. As the Legion moved further west, the frequency and savagery of the attacks increased. Every time the alert was sounded, Rufinius felt the same paralysing fear that had gripped him in the water. But whenever he drew his sword, the killing became a little easier, his thoughts a little clearer, until he found something approaching calm in those frantic, deadly contests. Gedarus explained the phenomenon to him between marches. When you're fighting a man for your life, it shakes out everything that's not essential. You stop caring if your woman really loves you, or who owes you money, or where you're going to sleep tonight. You just want him to die so you can go on living. Rufinius nodded, relieved that someone else had understood this first. And when you realise how much of yourself you've abandoned, Gedarus continued, you start to see what's left. And that's the real man. The sensation grew in him like a weed, the need to put down and destroy the enemy before they could do the same to him. Every Celt he butchered prolonged by a fraction the separate contest he played every day against Gedarus, ever watchful in the hope that this time his friend might finally be careless. Two games, one soft and subtle, full of smiles and forced conversation, the other brutal and honest, played with swords and blood and luck. 
He only had to win this first game once, but he could not escape the burgeoning fear that sooner or later somebody else would beat him at the second. At last they reached the broad river valley that marked the fringe of Siluri territory. An ominous murmur ran through the men at the sight of it, a seething rush of dirty water that overran its banks, tearing trees up by the roots and smashing them to splinters in its churning grip. Beyond this, a jagged line of coal-black peaks reared up, crowned with ugly knots of bare wood that seemed to scrape at the low racing clouds, fortresses ready to pour out death on all who approach them. The legion rattled to a halt and their centurion turned to address them. Orders from the prefect, this is where we make our mark. We're going to dig in and fortify, hold this side of the river until such time as the waters recede. The first three cohorts will keep watch on the perimeter. The rest of you, time to get your hands dirty. They set about felling trees, trimming timber and clearing ground. It was punishing work, but Rufinius faced it with relief. If they could not cross the valley, neither could the Silures, and that one deadly game could be put on hold. By nightfall, a rough defensive wall was in place, surrounding a field of sucking mud. Every tent, every tunic, every face was caked and filthy. The men huddled in groups around their cooking pots, saying nothing, and, for the first time in many days... Rufinius found himself eating alone. He finally came across Gedarus, sheltering in the lee of the new wall. It was almost too dark to see here, but he sensed his friend's hesitance immediately. What are you doing? Praying for what it's worth. The first cold touch of anxiety made its way down Rufinius's back as the woman's words came unbidden to his mind. Your gods can't help you here. What for? he asked. We're sending a scouting team across the water. The prefect wants me in charge. If he noticed Rufinius's answering silence, he chose not to comment on it. If I make it back, there'll be a promotion waiting for me. And what if you don't make it back? Then I'll die fighting and die well. Rufinius lowered his head against the downpour, watching the mud pool around his feet. When he spoke again, each word felt hewn from stone. Take me with you. They left before sunrise, twelve men stealing out into the rain. They wore rough woolen cloaks and hoods over their armour and carried six flat-bottomed rowing boats between them. Rufinius felt utterly wretched. Fear gnawed at him like a fire at dry timbers but he could not bear the prospect of seeing the key to his prison carried off across the water, never to return. So he kept his mouth shut and gave the sputtering torches of the auxiliary camp a hopeful glance as they passed. But if the woman was with them, she was keeping out of sight. We'll land a few miles downstream, Gedarus explained as they lowered their boats into the swirling waters. Then make our way inland and approach the forts from behind. With luck, the Silures won't be looking over their shoulders. 
They fought the river with every stroke. Rufinius ground his teeth as their flimsy boat bucked and span, the water constantly threatening to swamp them. Twice the limbs of once mighty trees swept past, close enough to touch. He twisted in his seat, straining to make out their position in the choking blackness. I can't see the others, he said, alarmed. They know their jobs, Gedderus hissed. Just keep rowing. Rufinius counted off the minutes until he judged they should have reached the opposite bank. The water slapped and sucked at the boat, but they did not strike land. Are we still on course? he asked. Gedderus, his face grey, rowed on in silence. Then, with a violent start, the boat ground to a juddering halt. Before the sound had even died away, Gedderus vaulted clear of the bow. Rufinius hurried after him, plunging knee-deep into a field of stinking grey mud, thick as clay. They wrestled the boat clear of the water and clawed their way up the bank to more solid footing. Exhausted, Rufinius fell to his knees in the coarse grass. The land of the Silures climbed away from them into the darkness, pitted, sodden and empty. They were alone. We should try to find the others, he said. Gedderus waved him into silence. If they made it across, they're already on the move. You mean we're going alone? Gedderus pulled his cloak tight about him. Unless you'd rather stay here. Struggling after him, Rufinius experienced a moment of chilling objectivity. The two contests had converged. The final moves were being played here and now, and he stood to lose everything. They climbed in silence, sticking to the paltry cover of fallen rocks and stunted trees. A watery pre-dawn light seeped after them, teasing the first traces of morning mist from the soil. Rufinius watched them manifest, unfurling like spectres in an intricate silent dance. It was almost beautiful. But as they pressed on and the slopes closed in around them, the dancers multiplied into a throng, and before long it was as though the clouds had descended to swallow the land. This helps us, Gedderus whispered. Perhaps the gods are with us after all. Rufinius regarded the restless shroud enfolding them. Perhaps, he murmured, but which gods? Before Gedderus could answer, Something reached them through the fog. It sounded like the whisper of wind through forest leaves, though the few trees they had passed were bare, and nothing disturbed the blanket of mist surrounding them. What is that? hissed Rufinius. Gedderus said nothing, but slowly drew his sword. The sound continued, building with every second until it seemed to fill the valley from side to side, Rufinius drew his own sword, but held it in unsteady hands, turning this way and that in search of an enemy and finding none. Then, just as the sound seemed ready to break over them, the screaming began. 
It was a dirge of raw-throated shrieks, rising to a pitch that made both men flinch. The distant sunlight that filtered down to them was darkened as something huge and black and boiling thundered past through the ceiling of cloud. Rufinius fell to his knees. As a boy, he had attended a dogfight in which one of the animals had been rabid. He remembered the blooded teeth, the half-mad bloodshot eyes, the stink of sickness and death. For a moment before it died, the animal had looked right at him, and it had made a noise like this. He screwed his eyes shut and redoubled his grip on his sword, and then, above the din, he heard Gedarus laughing. He looked up, just in time to see his friend resheath his blade. What is it? Gedarus continued to laugh as the dark shape passed on, sweeping down the valley and carrying its fearful noise with it. What's happening? Rufinius snapped, still crouching on his knees in the mud he felt suddenly foolish. Birds! Gedarus wiped at the shoulder of his cloak. His hand came away smeared with the yellow-brownish paste of bird mess. Looking around, Rufinius saw at least half a dozen fresh deposits on the ground surrounding them. Just a flock of bloody ravens. Gedarus swaggered over and helped Rufinius to his feet. A little shakily, Rufinius returned his sword to its scabbard and nodded his thanks. I've never seen so many together. Heading to the river to feed, perhaps, said Gedarus. Unless it's mating season. Rufinius managed a smile and had just returned his sword to its scabbard when he heard another sound, rising from behind the dwindling echo of the flock. This sound was different, more distinct and less consistent, and it made both men's blood run cold, the harsh bark and call of silurry tongues echoing down the valley. Their flight was confused and directionless, a barely controlled fall that finally brought them breathless and ragged to the river's edge. Where's the boat? Rufinius gasped. This was not where they had landed, and the clamour of the alien cries was building behind them. It must be close. Gedarus drew his sword. You go that way. I'll go this. One of us will find it. No! Rufinius cried. We both have to go back. The full-throated blast of a horn pierced the fog. We don't have time for this, said Gedarus, already turning away. Good luck. He stopped short when he realised that Rufinius now held him by the arm. What do you think you're doing? Rufinius held out a trembling hand. Give me the pendant. What? Please, I have to have it. Gedarus pressed a protective hand to his chest. What for? They could make out the cries of individual warriors now, still out of sight in the mist but coming closer. Just give it to me! Rufinius shrieked. Gedarus pulled away, his countenance hardening. I don't know what you're doing, but if you don't shut up, I'll cut you down myself. Then do it! With fumbling fingers, Rufinius drew his sword. Fight me for it! Gedarus looked him over, and for an instant might even have accepted the offer, but another blast of the horn, terrifyingly close now, was enough to convince him to shake his head and step away. And that was when Rufinius slashed open his cheek. 
The two men staggered apart, eyes wide. Rufinius felt his hands begin to shake while, with deliberate calm, Gedarus drew his sword and levelled it at his friend's head. What did she promise you? Rufinius gaped, too shocked to respond. Seizing his chance, Gedarus stepped forward, drew back his arm to strike, and hesitated. Rufinius moved without thinking, a darting slash, a twist, and something wet burst along the edge of his blade. Gedarus fell against him, throwing an arm around his shoulder and almost bearing them both to the ground. His mouth worked to take in air, but only succeeded in producing red froth. Then he slumped to the ground and lay still. Rufinius was still kneeling over the body when the first of the Salaris reached him, and as each fear and recrimination was pared away by the sharp edge of battle, he realised that something had changed. It didn't matter what they did to him now. He had played the game and won. And yet he fought, long and hard and well, the pounding of his heart like the beating of mighty wings inside his skull, until at last he stood alone, the master of a crop of bodies lying open to the rain. When it was done, he resheathed his sword, fastened the pendant around his neck, and began the task of dragging his friend's corpse back to the boat. She was waiting for him in the lumber yard, the great stacks of mouldering timber forming a narrow alleyway that screened them from the activity of the rest of the fortress. She was younger than he remembered, her features stronger, more handsome, there was something of the blush of motherhood about her. You have it? she asked. He held it up for her to see. You are an exceptional young man, she said, cupping it in her hands as she might a small bird. You have earned everything I promised you. Rufinius looked around, uncomfortable. He could make out the axe wounds in the rough flesh of the timber, home to countless things that burrowed and teemed. I don't want it, he said at last. He had been expecting the woman to show surprise or anger, but she did neither. She just watched him. I thought I was fighting to escape, but in the end, I was just fighting for this, he shrugged. Well, there it is. The woman was smiling, but it had none of the callousness of her former manner. And what drives you to battle now your prize is won? Honestly, and he managed to smile, it's the only thing I'm good at. He took a step back towards the space of noise. Enjoy the pendant. She laughed then and swept towards him, pressing it back into his unresisting hands. I got the prize I came for, she whispered, her lips at his cheek, her breath hot and stinging. What need have I of trinkets? She forced her lips against his for an instant and was gone, the taste of earth and blood all that remained. Rufinius stood there for a while, turning the pendant over and over, the single black eye winking at him. Then he slipped it round his neck and started back to the barracks. The centurions were meeting. The waters would recede soon. There were battles ahead.
I last practiced any form of martial art in a hall in California about seven months ago. We attended a Krav Maga session run by an Air Force officer, as endlessly cheerful as he was pathologically incapable of trying not, of not trying to kill us with physical exercise. It was an interesting experience, because Krav Maga isn't actually a martial art. There are no kata, no set forms, certainly basically no rules of competition as he described them. Instead, Krav Maga is focused on one thing, getting you away from your attacker as fast as possible, with the possibility of doing said attacker crippling damage on the way out a real plus. In the space of an hour, we learned three or four different ways to chain blows together, a couple of decent trips and throws that tied nicely into my judo and Marguerite's Aikido training, and did enough cardio to remind me that I needed to do a lot more cardio. It was huge, sweaty fun, and hugely difficult, and it was, for an hour, focused entirely on violence. A very positive experience. That was, after all, in California. But joking aside, well, joking... Some of the most polite people I've ever met have been in dojos. Martial artists start out as an uneasy combination of terror and ego, absolutely convinced they're the baddest son of a bitch in the room and completely terrified of having to prove it. Some of them, of course, are fully capable of proving it, as I found out during a judo drill, where a French colleague of mine basically spent ten minutes fighting and pinning an opposite team of eight people. In order. More than once. But in my limited experience, guys like that are the exception to the rule. The vast majority of the people who've taught me have been polite, friendly, endlessly positive, and thankfully very patient. Now it being me. That, of course, turns into they're coddling the fat guy, in my mind. I'm working on that. Especially as it's looking like our lives are finally settling down enough to make regular training a real possibility. I don't feel physically confident enough, or frankly reckless enough to return to Mutai just yet, and there's no judo club I can find in the area that isn't full of small children, whilst the idea of competing in a red belt tournament where I am twice as tall as every other competitor has its perks, can't help but feel it would be a little uncouth. However, a mile and a half away there is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu club. They're part of a worldwide organisation, they're a mile and a half away, their rates are insanely cheap and they seem welcoming. Which means... Two weeks or so out, before we can go along, I find myself asking myself the same question that the story does. What do you fight for? You see, a couple of years ago I had a plan. I was going to grade a couple of times in judo, I was going to get my Thai boxing decent, and I was going to take a cage fight. Just to see if I could. That made perfect sense at the time, because there were things going on in my life which meant I was permanently in damage control. The idea of the simple, disciplined math of me and another guy hurting each other as badly as we possibly could for an extended period of time within a fairly strict set of rules had its appeal. I wanted to get hit. I wanted to bleed. I wanted to fight. It was going quite well, too. Then, two days out from my first judo tournament, a bad throw injured my knee for close to five months. Two days later... I sat in the hall and I watched my training partner, who was the only other person in my weight class, win, simply by stepping onto the mat. Had I been able to put my gi on, the fight would have been very, very simple and very, very fast. Steve would have politely and gently and firmly picked me up, put me on my ass and pinned me, and I would have got a silver medal, shitty knee and all. But I could barely walk, let alone fight, so I sat on the sidelines 
and a few months later my life changed completely and I bowed off the mat. I may not go back. Like I say, there's no judo club where I live now, and I don't think I'm going back to the plan to take the cage fight. I still want to get fit. I still want to learn a martial art or two. I still want to compete. I still have a couple of ideas there that I've had for a couple of years now that I would love to see come to fruition. But they may not. Ever. And that's, I think, okay. Because that's not why I fight. I fight to define myself every day against a lifetime of expectations and slights perceived unreal. I fight to get my voice heard over my own crippling self-doubts and occasional self-loathing. I fight to keep going when professional frustration ties me so tightly in knots that I sit and seethe or cry or just get so numbed to any professional development that I don't let myself feel the joy because everything takes so damn long because everyone else isn't me. I fight to be recognised for the work I do and I burn when I'm not. I fight to be respected and expect not to be, but that, I see, is based on past experience rather than current truth. I fight to move aside from the countless times I've been let down across every element of my life in the past and focus on all the times things have come through. I fight to have faith in myself, in my work, in other people. I fight because if you don't fight, the only thing you're doing is standing still, and sooner or later you'll have to fight just to do that too. I fight because I write. I write because that's how I fight. It's all I know how to do. It's the only thing I have ever been good at. Although my baking's improving quite a lot. BJJ is going to be a breeze, after all that. An aching, sweating, panting, spraining, agonising breeze. What do you fight for? Oh, and of course I fight for the servers because they're sentient large metal boxes, none filled with ticky-tacky, that serve our needs even as we serve them. We rely on you to keep them appeased and to pay our authors, so if you like this story, please go to pseudopod.org and click on Feed the Pod. I promise our mechanical overlords get all teary and gushy when you do. Pseudopod will return next week with Wings by Nathaniel Lee. In the meantime, Pseudopod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, and Pseudopod knows you've got to relax. Stay calm in there. The cage is your home. You set the pace. You set the rhythm. Feel the Beethoven. Be smarter than him. Be more patient. Wait for him to make a mistake, and when he does, that's your moment. <laughs>